0: SECTION 23 OF THE JOURNAL OF A TOUR TO THE Hebrides WITH SAMUEL JOHNSON BY JAMES BOSWELL THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN RECORDING BY Anthony OGUS MONDAY 25th OCTOBER My acquaintance, the Reverend Mr John Macaulay, one of the ministers of Inveraray and brother to our good friend at Calder, came to us this morning and accompanied us to the castle, where I presented Dr. Johnson to the Duke of Argyll. We were shown through the house, and I never shall forget the impression made upon my fancy by some of the ladies' maids tripping about in neat morning dresses. After seeing for a long time little but rusticity, their lively manner and gay inviting appearance pleased me so much that I thought for the moment I could have been a knight-errant for them we then got into a low one-horse chair ordered for us by the duke in which we drove about the place dr johnson was much struck by the grandeur and elegance of this princely seat he thought however the castle too low and wished it had been a story higher he said what i admire here is the total defiance of expense i had a particular pride in showing him a great number of fine old trees to compensate for the nakedness which had made such an impression on him on the eastern coast of scotland when we came in before dinner we found the duke and some gentlemen in the hall dr johnson took much notice of the large collection of arms which are excellently disposed there i told what he had said to sir alexander macdonald of his ancestors not suffering their arms to rust well said the doctor but let us be glad we live in times when arms may rust we can sit today at his grace's table without any risk of being attacked and perhaps sitting down again wounded or maimed the duke placed dr johnson next himself at table i was in fine spirits and though sensible that i had the misfortune of not being in favour with the duchess i was not in the least disconcerted and offered her grace some of the dish that was before me it must be owned that i was in the right to be quite unconcerned if i could i was the duke of Ardyle's guest and i had no reason to suppose that he adopted the prejudices and resentments of the duchess of hamilton i knew it was the rule of modern high life not to drink to anybody but that i might have the satisfaction for once to look the duchess in the face with a glass in my hand i with a respectful air addressed her my lady duchess i have the honour to drink your grace's good health i repeated the words audibly and with a steady countenance this was perhaps rather too much but some allowance must be made for human feelings the duchess was very attentive to dr johnson i know not how a middle state came to be mentioned her grace wished to hear him on that point Madam," said he Your own relation, Mr. Archibald Campbell, can tell you better about it than I can. He was a bishop of the non-juring communion, and wrote a book upon the subject. He engaged to get it for her grace. He afterwards gave a full history of Mr. Archibald Campbell, which I am sorry I do not recollect particularly. He said Mr. Campbell had been bred a violent Whig, but afterwards kept better company and became a Tory. He said this with a smile in pleasant allusion, as I thought, to the opposition between his own political principles and those of the Dukes' clan. He added that Mr. Campbell, after the Revolution, was thrown into jail on account of his tenets, but on application by letter to the old Lord Townsend, was released, that he always spoke of his Lordship with great gratitude, saying, though a Whig, he had humanity.' Dr. Johnson and I passed some time together in June 1784 at Pembroke College, Oxford, with the Reverend Dr. Adams, the Master, and I having expressed a regret that my note relative to Mr. Archibald Campbell was imperfect, he was then so good as to write with his own hand on the blank page of my journal, opposite to that which contains what I have now mentioned, the following paragraph which, however, is not quite so full as the narrative he gave at Inverere. The Honourable Archibald Campbell was, I believe, the nephew of the Marquis of Argyll. He began life by engaging in Monmouth's rebellion, and, to escape the law, lived some time in Surinam. When he returned he became zealous for episcopacy and monarchy, and at the Revolution adhered not only to the non-jurors, But to those who refused to communicate with the church of england or to be present at any worship where the usurper was mentioned as king he was i believe more than once apprehended in the reign of king william and once at the accession of george he was the familiar friend of hicks and nelson a man of letters but injudicious and very curious and inquisitive but credulous he lived in seventeen forty three or forty four about seventy-five years old the subject of luxury having been introduced dr johnson defended it we have now said he a splendid dinner before us which of all these dishes is unwholesome the duke asserted that he had observed the grandees of spain diminished in their size by luxury dr johnson politely refrained from opposing directly an observation which the duke himself had made but said man must be very different from other animals if he is diminished by good living for the size of all other animals is increased by it i made some remark that seemed to imply a belief in second sight the duchess said i fancy you'll be a methodist this was the only sentence her grace deigned to utter to me and I take it for granted she thought it a good hit on my credulity in the Douglas cause. A gentleman in company, after dinner, was desired by the Duke to go to another room for a specimen of curious marble which His Grace wished to show us. He brought a wrong piece, upon which the Duke sent him back again. He could not refuse, but to avoid any appearance of civility he whistled as he walked out of the room to show his independency on my mentioning this afterwards to Dr Johnson, he said it was a nice trait of character. Dr Johnson talked a great deal and was so entertaining that Lady Betty Hamilton after dinner went and placed her chair close to his, leaned upon the back of it, and listened eagerly. It would have made a fine picture to have drawn the sage and her at this time in their several attitudes. He did not know all the while how much he was honoured i told him afterwards i never saw him so gentle and complacent as this day we went to tea the duke and i walked up and down the drawing-room conversing the duchess still continued to show the same marked coldness for me for which though i suffered from it i made every allowance considering the very warm part that i had taken for douglas cause in which she thought her son deeply interested had not her grace discovered some displeasure towards me, I should have suspected her of insensibility or dissimulation. Her grace made Dr. Johnson come and sit by her, and asked him why he made his journey so late in the year. "'Why, madam,' said he, "'you know Mr. Boswell must attend the court of session, "'and it does not rise till the 12th of August.' She said with some sharpness, "'I know nothing of Mr. Boswell.' poor lady lucy douglas to whom i mentioned this observed she knew too much of mr boswell i shall make no remark on her grace's speech i indeed felt it as rather too severe but when i recollected that my punishment was inflicted by so dignified a beauty i had that kind of consolation which a man would feel who is strangled by a silken cord dr johnson was all attention to her grace he used afterwards a droll expression upon her enjoying the three titles of Hamilton, Brandon and Argyll. Borrowing an image from the Turkish Empire, he called her a Duchess with three tails. He was much pleased with our visit at the castle of Inverary. The Duke of Argyll was exceedingly polite to him, and upon his complaining of the Shelties, which he had hitherto ridden being too small for him, His grace told him he should be provided with a good horse to carry him next day. Mr. John Macaulay passed the evening with us at our inn. When Dr. Johnson spoke of people whose principles were good, but whose practice was faulty, Mr. Macaulay said he had no notion of people being in earnest in their good professions, whose practice was not suitable to them. The doctor grew warm and said, "'Sir!' "'Are you so grossly ignorant of human nature "'as not to know that a man may be very sincere in good principles "'without having good practice?' "'Dr. Johnson was unquestionably in the right, "'and whoever examines himself candidly will be satisfied of it, "'though the inconsistency between principles and practice "'is greater in some men than in others. "'I recollect very little of this night's conversation.' I am sorry that indolence came upon me towards the conclusion of our journey, so that I did not write down what passed with the same assiduity as during the greatest part of it. Tuesday, twenty sixth October, Mister Macaulay breakfasted with us. Nothing hurt or dismayed by his last night's correction, being a man of good sense, he had a just admiration of Doctor Johnson. Either yesterday morning or this. I communicated to Dr. Johnson, from Mr. Macaulay's information, the news that Dr. Beattie had got a pension of £200 a year. He sat up in his bed, clapped his hand and cried, Oh, brave we! A peculiar exclamation of his when he rejoices. As we sat over our tea, Mr. Hume's tragedy of Douglas was mentioned i put dr johnson in mind that once in a coffee-house at oxford he called to old mr sheridan how came you sir to give hume a gold medal for writing that foolish play and defied mr sheridan to show ten good lines in it he did not insist they should be together but that there were not ten good lines in the whole play he now persisted in this i endeavoured to defend that pathetic and beautiful tragedy and repeated the following passage Sincerity, thou first of virtues, let no mortal leave thy onward path, although the earth should gape, and from the gulf of hell destruction cry, to take dissimulation's winding way. Johnson That will not do, sir. Nothing is good but what is consistent with truth or probability, which this is not. Juvenal indeed gives us a noble picture of inflexible virtue esto bonus miles tutor bonus arbiter idem integer ambiguae si quando citabere testis insertaequi rei falaris licet imperet ut sis falsus et ad moto dictet perjuria tauro summum crede nefas animam prefere pudorae et proctor vita vivendi vivendae perdere causas He repeated the lines with great force and dignity, then added, And after this comes Johnny Hume, with his earth gaping, and his destruction crying, Pooh! While we were lamenting the number of ruined religious buildings which we had lately seen, I spoke with peculiar feeling of the miserable neglect of the chapel belonging to the palace of Holyrood House, in which are deposited the remains of many of the kings of Scotland and of many of our nobility i said it was a disgrace to the country that it was not repaired and particularly complained that my friend douglas the representative of a great house and proprietor of a vast estate should suffer the sacred spot where his mother lies interred to be unroofed and exposed to all the inclemencies of the weather dr johnson who i know not how had formed an opinion on the hamilton side in the douglas cause slyly answered sir sir don't be too severe upon the gentleman don't accuse him of want of filial piety lady jane douglas was not his mother he roused my zeal so much that i took the liberty to tell him he knew nothing of the cause which i do most seriously believe was the case we were now in a country of bridles and saddles and set out fully equipped the duke of argyll was obliging enough to mount dr johnson on a stately steed from his grace's stable my friend was highly pleased and joseph said he now looks like a bishop we dined at the inn at tarbot and at night came to rosedow the beautiful seat of sir james colquhoun on the banks of loch lomond where I and any friends whom I have introduced have ever been received with kind and elegant hospitality. Wednesday, 27th October When I went into Dr Johnson's room this morning, I observed to him how wonderfully courteous he had been at Inverary, and said, You were quite a fine gentleman when with the Duchess. He answered in good humour, Sir, I look upon myself as a very polite man and he was right in a proper manly sense of the word as an immediate proof of it let me observe that he would not send back the duke of argyle's horse without a letter of thanks which i copied to his grace the duke of argyle my lord that kindness which disposed your grace to supply me with the horse which i have now returned will make you pleased to hear that he has carried me well by my diligence in the little commission with which I was honoured by the Duchess, I will endeavour to show how highly I value the favours which I have received and how much I desire to be thought, my lord, your grace's most obedient and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. rosedo October 29, 1773 The Duke was so attentive to his respectable guest that on the same day he wrote him an answer which was received at Alkinleck. to dr johnson Alkinleck, to ayrshire sir i am glad to hear your journey from this place was not unpleasant in regard to your horse i wish i could have supplied you with good weather which i am afraid you felt the want of the justice of Argyll desires her compliments to you and is much obliged to you for remembering her commission i am sir your Most Obedient Humble Servant, Argyle, Inverary, October 29, 1773. I am happy to insert every memorial of the honour done to my great friend. Indeed, I was at all times desirous to preserve the letters which he received from eminent persons, of which, as of all other papers, he was very negligent. And I at once proposed to him that they should be committed to my care as his custos rotulorum. I wish he had complied with my request, as by that means many valuable writings might have been preserved that are now lost. After breakfast, Dr. Johnson and I were furnished with a boat and sailed about upon Loch Lomond and landed on some of the islands which are interspersed. He was much pleased with the scene which is so well known by the accounts of various travellers that it is unnecessary for me to attempt any description of it. I recollect none of his conversations except that when talking of dress he said, "'Sir, were I to have anything fine, it should be very fine. Were I to wear a ring, it should not be a bauble but a stone of great value. Were I to wear a laced or embroidered waistcoat, it should be very rich.' I had once a very rich laced waistcoat which I wore the first night of my tragedy. Lady Helen Colquhoun being a very pious woman, the conversation after dinner took a religious turn. Her ladyship defended the Presbyterian mode of public worship, upon which Dr Johnson delivered those excellent arguments for a form of prayer which is introduced into his journey. I am myself fully convinced that a form of prayer for public worship is in general most decent and edifying. Solenia verba have a kind of prescriptive sanctity and make a deeper impression on the mind than extemporaneous effusions, in which, as we know not what they are to be, we cannot readily acquiesce. Yet I would allow also of a certain portion of extempore address as occasion may require, this is the practice of the french protestant churches and although the office of forming supplications to the throne of heaven is in my mind too great a trust to be indiscriminately committed to the discretion of every minister i do not mean to deny that sincere devotion may be experienced when joining in prayer with those who use no liturgy we were favoured with sir james colquhoun's coach to convey us in the evening to cameron the seat of commissary smollett our satisfaction of finding ourselves again in a comfortable carriage was very great we had a pleasing conviction of the commodiousness of civilization and heartily laughed at the ravings of those absurd visionaries who have attempted to persuade us of the superior advantages of a state of nature mr smollett was a man of considerable learning with abundance of animal spirits so that he was a very good companion for dr johnson who said to me we have had more solid talk here than at any place where we have been i remember dr johnson gave us this evening an able and eloquent discourse on the origin of evil and on the consistency of moral evil with the power and goodness of god he showed us how it arose from our free agency an extinction of which would be a still greater evil than any we experience i know not that he said anything absolutely new but he said a great deal wonderfully well and perceiving us to be delighted and satisfied he concluded his harangue with an air of benevolent triumph over an objection which has distressed many worthy minds this then is the answer to the question words in greek mrs smollett whispered me that it was the best sermon she had ever heard much do I upbraid myself for having neglected to preserve it. THURSDAY 28th OCTOBER Mr Smollett pleased Dr Johnson by producing a collection of newspapers in the time of the usurpation from which it appeared that all sorts of crimes were very frequent during that horrible anarchy. By the side of the high road to Glasgow, at some distance from his house, He had erected a pillar to the memory of his ingenious kinsman, Dr Smollett, and he consulted Dr Johnson as to an inscription for it. Lord Kames, who though he had a great store of knowledge, with much ingenuity and uncommon activity of mind, was no profound scholar, had it seems recommended an English inscription. Dr Johnson treated this with great contempt, saying, An English inscription will be a disgrace to Dr Smollett. And in answer to what Lord Kames had urged, as to the advantage of its being in English, because it will be generally understood, I observed that all to whom Dr Smollett's merit could be an object of respect and imitation would understand it as well in Latin, and that surely it was not meant for the Highland drovers or other such people who pass and repass that way. We were then shown a Latin inscription proposed for this monument. Dr Johnson sat down with an ardent and liberal earnestness to revise it, and greatly improved it by several additions and variations. I unfortunately did not take a copy of it as it originally stood, but I have happily preserved every fragment of what Dr Johnson wrote. Quix quis ades viator velmente felix vel studuis cultus immorari paululum memoriae to i smolet MD viri is vitutibus quas in homine et sive et laudes et imiteris post qua mira se tali tantoqui viro suo patruelae hanc columnam amori se heur in ane momentum in ipsis leviniae Repis Quas primis infans vigitipus perso unuit, versiculis qui feri moriturus illustravit, ponendam curavit. We had this morning a singular proof of Dr. Johnson's quick and retentive memory. Hayes' translation of Marshall was lying in a window. I said I thought it was pretty well done, and showed him a particular epigram i think of ten but i'm certain of eight lines he read it and tossed away the book saying no it is not pretty well as i persisted in my opinion he said why sir the original is thus and he repeated it and this man's translation is thus and then he repeated that also exactly though he had never seen it before and read it over only once and that too without any intention of getting it by heart here a post-chaise which i had ordered from glasgow came for us and we drove on in high spirits we stopped at dumbarton and though the approach to the castle there is very steep dr johnson ascended it with alacrity and surveyed all that was to be seen during the whole of our tour he showed uncommon spirit could not bear to be treated like an old or infirm man and was very unwilling to accept of any assistance insomuch that our landing at icomkill when sir alan mclean and i submitted to be carried on men's shoulders from the boat to the shore as it could not be brought quite close to land he sprang into the sea and waded vigorously out on our arrival at the saracens head inn at glasgow i was made happy by good accounts from home and dr johnson who had not received a single letter since we left aberdeen found here a great many the perusal of which entertained him much he enjoyed in imagination the comforts which we could now command and seemed to be in high glee i remember he put a leg up on each side of the grate and said with a mock solemnity by way of soliloquy but loud enough for me to hear it here am i an englishman sitting by a coal fire friday twenty ninth october the professors of the university being informed of our arrival dr stevenson dr reed and mr anderson breakfasted with us mr anderson accompanied us while dr johnson viewed this beautiful city he had told me that one day in london when dr adam smith was boasting of it he turned to him and said pray sir have you ever seen brentford this was surely a strong instance of his impatience and spirit of contradiction i put him in mind of it to-day while he expressed his admiration of the elegant buildings and whispered him don't you feel some remorse we were received in the college by a number of the professors who showed all due respect to dr johnson and then we paid a visit to the principal dr leachman at his own house where dr johnson had the satisfaction of being told that his name had been gratefully celebrated in one of the parochial congregations in the highlands as the person to whose influence it was chiefly owing that the New Testament was allowed to be translated into the Urse language. It seems some political members of the Society in Scotland for propagating Christian knowledge had opposed this pious undertaking as tending to preserve the distinction between the Highlanders and Lowlanders. Dr Johnson wrote a long letter upon the subject to a friend, which being shown to them made them ashamed, and afraid of being publicly exposed, so they were forced to a compliance. It is now in my possession, and is perhaps one of the best productions of his masterly pen. Professors Reed and Anderson, and two Messieurs Foulis, the Elzevirs of Glasgow, dined and drank tea with us at our inn, after which the professors went away, and I, having a letter to write, left my fellow traveller with Messieurs Foulis though good and ingenious men, they had that unsettled speculative mode of conversation which is offensive to a man regularly taught in an English school and university. I found that instead of listening to the dictates of the sage they had teased him with questions and doubtful disputations. He came in a flutter to me and desired I might come back again for he could not bear these men's. "'Oh, ho, sir,' said I, you are flying to me for refuge he never in any situation was at a loss for a ready repartee he answered with quick vivacity it is of two evils choosing the least i was delighted with this flash bursting from the cloud which hung upon his mind closed my letter directly and joined the company we supped at professor anderson's The general impression upon my memory is that we had not much conversation at Glasgow, where the professors, like their brethren at Aberdeen, did not venture to expose themselves much to the battery of cannon which they knew might play upon them. Dr Johnson, who was fully conscious of his own superior powers, afterwards praised Principal Robertson for his caution in this respect. He said to me, ''Robertson, sir, was in the right.'' Robertson is a man of eminence and the head of a college at Edinburgh. He had a character to maintain and did well not to risk its being lessened. End of section 23